for us to have a better world and a better future, we have to first change our perception. And to change our perception, we have to be able to change ourselves. And what psychedelics and these plant medicines allow us to do is go into the abyss of the mind and change our perception. And if everybody was to go inward and change themselves and have that metamorphosis internally, then I think naturally the world becomes a better place. Anyone should have the right to consume something that is born out of nature. Welcome to Salish Wolf, a podcast bringing you inspirational stories of extraordinary endeavors. I am your host, Todd Howard. Just south of my Vancouver Island home is a tiny archipelago on which for nearly a decade lived a most astonishing animal, a lone wolf. Takea, as he would be named, survived and thrived in an environment where likely no wolf had ever set foot. In the process, he captured the hearts of a community and showed us even the most unlikely is possible. His story is not dissimilar to those of the individuals interviewed on this podcast. At some point, they each had to turn to their inner lone wolf. From there, they were able to lead and inspire. My intention is to share their journeys to help you discover your own inner greatness and peace. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor Point Expeditions, where I provide life-changing personal leadership retreats for men, coaching, and other valuable personal growth resources. Visit anchorpointexpeditions.com to see where your journey could take you. Puya Farmand found a deeper connection to nature, including people as part of nature, during his first psilocybin experience. Since then, he has become a self-described psychonaut and is currently CEO of Levity Labs, an emerging multidisciplinary integrative wellness and psychedelics company that is promoting evidence-based psychedelic therapy. Growing up in war-ravaged Iran, Poya received an unenviable education in pervasive grief and fear. Concurrently, he also received from his grandmother profound exposure to plants and food as medicine, including for helping to heal emotional trauma. After personally being diagnosed with depression and ADHD as a young adult, Poya chose to turn inward for healing instead of suppressing symptoms through pharmacotherapy. Plants and mushrooms became his portal to inner wellness and ultimately a better way to rise from depression. In this episode, Poya takes us on a trip through his own journey with psychedelics, provides colorful history and lore of psychedelics, shares paradigm-shifting psychedelic clinical research and applications, and explores the genesis of his company, Levity Labs, their ethos around therapeutic freedom, and their positioning to be an industry pioneer through their mission to enhance the well-being of society. Poya is on a stratospheric trajectory into the corporate world, yet he remains grounded, heart-centered, and humble during the process. He understands that to deliver the most positive impact to humanity, his company needs to not just be successful based on the currencies of commerce and media, but more importantly, on the virtues of integrity and human connection. Please enjoy this episode of Salish Wolf with Poya Farmand. Poya, welcome to Salish Wolf. Pleasure to be here, Todd. Thank you for having me. It is an absolute honor to have you here, and thank you so much for agreeing to join with me in this discussion today. I'm really excited to learn more about you and the work that you're bringing to the world. Absolutely. It's an honor to be here and uh, glad to open up that can of worms. I'm going to start with probably a question you get asked a million times, but tell me about your name, Poya. What does it mean? So my name is Persian and 
what it means uh, in poetry, they use it as curiosity, but essentially uh, how it's derived, it means uh, seeker of truth, um, which which has kind of translated into my personality, uh, maybe less so now, but definitely when I was in my uh, 20s, I had this big urge to uh, unveil the truths of life. And uh, yeah, <laughs> Persian is a very poetic uh, language and it's weird like the, the, for example just just to you know if you're saying goodbye uh, or uh, as a form of endearment uh, you essentially say let me sacrifice sacrifice myself for you and that that's how we uh, show each other that we care about each other <laughs> really absolutely yeah. I love the languages that have more meaning and poetry to them as you know, I've been a student of Chinese medicine for decades, and there's just so much so, more that can be derived from the language, both spoken and written, than what is commonly derivable from English language. For example, like my name means nothing. I, I, I think in Old English, I'm Foxy, That's, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not why my parents named me Todd. <laughs> Todd means foxy. Yeah, I, I like to I like to I like to ride on that one a bit. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm living that learning life. something new every day. <laughs> All right, so, foxy, let's do this. <laughs> so, as a a seeker of truth, at least in your formative years, what were the types of things that you were seeking out? And I and I would wager you're still still somewhat seeking today because you're doing you're uncovering some really cool things. But Absolutely. what were some of the things from the early days? You know, I, I was a, quite a social character until uh, my early 20s when I, I, I faced, uh, you know, some troubles with the health of uh, immediate family members. And it caused me uh, to, to go more inward. And from there, I started studying history. And then that led me to philosophy. Uh, I studied a lot of German idealism and German philosophy, as well as everything from Chinese philosophy. Uh, and that kind of led me to the different uh, natural uh, frameworks and natural sciences and, uh, you know, everything from uh, the ancient schools, mystery schools, from Pythagoras to Socrates, Plato, and coming all the way up to uh, the, the more modern interpretations of philosophy that we have now. Uh, but really huge influences from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and uh you know, Hegel, uh, and that led me more towards the esoteric side of things. I, I thought there is more to wonder about in the world. And, uh, you know, in, in, in the esoteric studies or uh, things of that nature, I just, it, there was just a world of, that, that, that inspired me. And uh, I was very fascinated with, with the mind and the philosophy of the mind. And uh, that is kind of how I, became fascinated with psychedelics as well as it is you know as uh as stanislav Grof states uh psychedelics is to the study of the mind what the telescope is to astronomy and uh, the microscope to biology and uh, in my early 20s i discovered that and yeah that the, uh, it's still going the mind is a limitless thing and um, i'm still uh taking on these journeys and trying to understand it so you indicated that it was illness within the family that 
kind of influenced you to go deeper into this exploration? Were you looking into these ancient sources for coping mechanisms, for internal healing, for external answers? I don't exactly know. I, all I know is that I was very, uh, you know, I was just an average social person, you know, hung out with friends a lot and wasn't paying too much attention to, to my inner world. And from there on, uh, after this occurred in my family, I didn't have the motivation to really go out. So I was uh, finding meaning in, in other sources. And that kind of led me to start reading. And I was fascinated by uh, ancient history. Uh, and so I started from where my roots are from, from Persian history. And that kind of led me to Chinese history and Egyptian history and Greek history and Sumerian history. And uh, you can't really read history without going into the different uh, cultural aspects, which, which are largely predicated on, on the culture's philosophies. And, and that's how it really began. And then uh, I wasn't somebody who cared for mathematics in, uh, you know, my younger years in elementary school, middle school, but that understanding of logic and philosophy really led me down towards a natural understanding of mathematics as the language of the universe. And that led me to mathematics, which probably brought me into the world of finance. Crazy journey. You mentioned your Persian roots. You grew up in Iran. Is that correct? Yeah, in Iran, in Esfahan, the ancient capital, that's right. And how long were you there for? I was there till uh, I, I got to Canada five days before 9-11. So uh, until I was 11 years old. Okay. Yeah. And what sort of influence did that culture have on you and especially your transition into Canada and now into the work that you're doing with psychedelics or did it at all? Um, so in Persian culture, there's a big fascination with traditional medicines. Uh, and, you know, my earliest memories from my grandmother is uh, conjunctions that they would make when we were ill. And uh, there was nothing really associated with psychedelics in, in my childhood and growing up. But there was this tendency to go towards herbal medicine and it still is. We have uh, uh, a lot of uh, motivation and uh, to go towards the natural path when it comes to uh, our well-being, our diets, uh, what we uh, consume. And it was actually quite opposite when we got to Canada. You know, in Iran, there was seasons for fruits and uh, for, for different foods, and uh, they tasted different. Uh, in Canada, it seems like you can get anything anytime. Um, but with regards to Iran and how those things led me to psychedelics uh, and my fascination towards them, I don't really think or I can't think of a connection there, uh, to be honest. Yeah. And what about in the readings that you were doing of history? You mentioned Chinese history and other cultures. Shamanism obviously is deeply rooted in pretty much every indigenous culture. Did Absolutely. you Did you come across any of that during your your reading yeah so i i got more fascinated with persian history when i was already in canada and there's definitely uh connections there 
there is a some evidence to show that, uh, you know, if you read Persian poetry from Hafez, uh, there is a term called may, which is referred to as wine, but it was this kind of divine wine, much like the Dionysian wine in Greece, and I'm sure there's a connection there, uh, which included uh, the psilocybes as well as other uh, hallucinogenic herbs, and these poets and uh, astronomers and philosophers back in the day, they all consumed this May. And a lot of the poetry of what they call May or this, this divine wine is what uh, they drank and essentially connected with this higher source of consciousness. And uh, that was their kind of source towards this divination and this right to then, and they, they would usually speak of the nature of God in the universe from there on, which now a lot of people uh, reading Persian poetry uh, define as a man talking about his beloved or, or a girl, but really the beloved was a reflection of the universe and God in a lot of uh, instances, uh, which is fascinating. But, you know, even going to uh, northern Iran in the Alamut, there was a sect uh of of guerrilla uh, philosopher fighter warriors called the Hashashin, which is the root word from where the word assassin comes from. And their leader was uh, a man named Hassan Saba. And these guys, essentially what Hassan Saba did is created the Islamic version of paradise at the Alamut. And he would get his subjects high on a, uh, a formulation of uh, hashish, which some people, including Marco Polo, believe why the sect is called the Hashashin. Others believe it's because they're the followers of uh, Hassan. Uh, but there was also hallucinogenics there. These guys would uh, get drowsy, fall, fall asleep, and then wake up in this magnificent uh, uh, paradise with flowing rivers of honey and, and beautiful women, and they would uh, be uh, uh, they would be essentially entertained. And then Hassan Saba would uh, appear and they would see him as a godlike figure and that they've just gone to paradise. And after this experience, this divine experience of sorts, where they thought they went to heaven after ingesting this uh, compound of uh, herbs and hallucinogenic uh, compounds, uh, they would become followers of Hassan Saba and go under apprenticeship with them and uh, become... Uh, essentially these deadly divine warriors. Uh, and this is recorded in the history. It's, it's fascinating. And the game Assassin's Creed is actually based on uh, the Hashashin, which is, yeah, the old man of the mountain in, in the first Assassin's Creed game is Hassan Saba. Huh. Yeah. When you were speaking a bit ago about the wine, the Persian wine, that was mixed with herbs. Do you know what was in it? Like so traditionally? There's, there's, there isn't much about this, but from people I spoke to that are experts uh, of Persian poetry, I've heard there, there was uh, the active compound of psilocybin in it, as well as there's a root in Iran, I can't quite remember the name, but it's a hallucinogenic root as well that they mix together uh, potentially with with cannabis and created this uh, this this wine or may that they called. Others believe that it was just uh, just wine, <laughs> hmm. since you know Persia was one of the 
places where wine was actually discovered. Tell me a bit about your grandmother and her use of herbal medicine and the influence that she had on you. Absolutely, yeah. My grandmother is is extremely bullish on herbal medicine, and as in Iran, there there is hot foods, there is cold foods, and uh, growing up, what I can remember is essentially what we were supposed to eat when if we were feeling chilly, what we were supposed to eat when we, we were uh, feeling hot. I I'm not a expert with regards to herbal medicine whatsoever, but there was just uh, an absolute fascination with any illness, disease, anything that could go wrong, even mentally, it was uh, to be fixed with with uh, herbs, spices, and things of that nature, and tea. <laughs> and, uh, you know, pharmacology and uh, medicine was something that my grandmother didn't believe in and still doesn't. <laughs> hmm. She's now with us in Canada, and it's, it's fun to take her to the doctors. <laughs> and would she go out and harvest and forage and wildcraft the, the herbs, the plants that she was using? Uh, if you've seen any videos of the bazaar in Iran, there's everything you could imagine with regards right. to herbs and medicine in the bazaars. And, and uh, the people there are have been doing this generationally. Uh, their kids start working with them when they're you know four or five years old at the bazaar, and they, they just get to know everything in and out. So we would just go to the bazaar, and she would uh, essentially buy... Uh, whatever she uh, wanted to get, but with regards to particular, uh, you know, my knowledge is, is quite limited with regards to the herbal side of things. Uh, but yeah, in, in Persian culture, there's a major fascination with with herbs and how they can essentially enhance your well-being, and it's deeply rooted in our culture uh, as it is in in Chinese medicine as well. Mm-hmm. So, what was your first experience or exposure then to psychedelics man um it was a it was amazing so uh my first experience was at squamish actually uh in in british columbia and we went for a camping trip we knew that we were going to do uh magic mushrooms uh i don't know what kind of magic mushrooms they were thinking back on it but you know the active compound is psilocybin and we went uh, to to this beautiful site with with glacier waters uh, running and uh, a huge wall of trees uh, overhead us and uh, we had about an ounce of magic mushrooms and we just started taking them at that at that time we thought the average dose is five grams so we took five grams and uh, it was just I had never experienced something like that. So the first time, as you know, uh, uh, is I was speechless. I, my my first experience after about 40 minutes of ingesting it uh, was sitting by the fire, and it was already essentially done. And I had this remarkable connection with the fire, and there was music playing, electronic music, and I could... I felt like I have this this extremely deep connection to the fire, and I was overwhelmed. So I stopped looking at the fire and looked up, and I saw the stars suddenly. And it was just a mystical experience. I could kind of hear the music, uh, feel the music, and, and see the music when I closed my eyes, and I could see the connection between everything. And 
I didn't know what's happening mentally to me. I went by the glacier water and I dipped my feet in it and it felt like the water was hugging me. And so I actually went for a dip. Uh, I hadn't learned of Wim Hof yet at that point, but <laughs> I essentially, it, it was it was just amazing. Then uh, in, in the peak of the experience, I started seeing the visuals and I, I was, I, I didn't know what's happening to me. And everybody that was with me at that point had no idea either. We were doing it for the first time together, but we couldn't stop laughing and, uh, there was, you know, the cliche understanding that you were just so connected to nature. I just wanted to dip my hands in the water, touch the dirt. Uh, I, I was hugging trees for the first time in my life. Uh, <laughs> when we were when we were uh, collecting wood for the fire, I was so aware of just taking dead wood. If I kind of was, uh, I had a machete with me and I was trying to chop wood. If I hit a part of the wood that was alive, it would, it would, completely give me this uh, reaction uh, of pain. Uh, it, it was just an intense, intense connection to nature and this feeling of oneness as, as you hear all the time, but more so I had this different perspective of, of how I was seeing things. Everything that I was seeing was as if it was the first time I've seen them. And when I looked at my friends, I could I was noticing things about their uh, expressions that was completely new to me. And I could almost understand their feelings in a, in a way that I had never real, uh, realized we were capable of before. Uh, it was almost, I don't want to say telepathic, but we could understand each other without words. It, it was an absolutely enlightening experience. Uh, that wasn't uh, the most mystical experience I had, but uh, I've had uh, until now, but uh, yeah, it was just absolutely uh, such a shock from, you know, living every day uh, and suddenly coming up with this mushroom species that you take and it absolutely <laughs> rocks your world. Everything that you understood about your own mind and everything about nature and uh the, just the draw that nature has to us is, is amazing. And I remember thinking at that point is that we don't, we, uh, you know, there's this ideology and ideation that we came to the world. Uh, but I, I realized that we come out of the world and, and it was a true understanding of uh, the old sayings that, that we are derived from the same elements and foundations of nature. And I, that, that connection with nature was, was what I, uh, still remember uh, from that experience. It was absolutely amazing. And since then, I haven't stopped. And uh, even when I went into the financial uh, world, uh, I was I was an oddball because uh, you know I love psychedelics and and that's how I uh, really tuned into myself. Yeah. So as Poya, as the seeker of truth, the truth that you found in that first experience experience was this connection this knowledge that we come from the earth, that we're part of it. Were there any other takeaways that you had from that experience as far as truth or learning in particular about you? Nothing I can confidently say. I just was, you know, the first time you experienced something like that, I was just amazed and overstimulated. 
uh, and there was a lot of people around me. It wasn't something that my intention was set towards going within and kind of discovering myself. It was just out of curiosity. We right. had done a lot of research uh, and uh, read some articles and whatnot, uh, especially, you know, going back to the 1950s and 60s where there was that renaissance of psychedelic research. We had looked at those and suddenly this wonder drug was co completely abandoned by the media and uh, Nixon came in and essentially made all of these compounds, Schedule One drugs. But we looked at a lot of the research that had come out before, uh, you know, from Timothy Leary and whatnot. And uh, we were confident, we were super excited to do it, but it was just mind blowing. At that time, uh, I, do re I do remember I had many realizations, but they weren't realizations that I could actually grasp and hold on to. It was just absolute overstimulation, things happening uh, all over the place in my mind, all these different connections between now what I understand to be the different parts of my brain and all these neural pathways were completely overwhelming. And uh, I, I hadn't become an experienced psychonaut at that point to... to have the confidence to sit down and actually go with it. Uh, now I do it a little bit differently, but um, yeah, at that point, I don't remember any other deep realizations to be absolutely candid. Yeah. And the impact moving forward from that experience, was there any lingering residue of what you experienced? Absolutely. So that kind of changed my perception towards everything at around the same time uh, I had, been diagnosed with ADHD and I had gone to psychologists and they had diagnosed me with, uh, you know, uh, mild or moderate forms of depression and they wanted to put me on SSRIs essentially. But just naturally, I went towards the community, uh, certain people in my network that had this community where they did psychedelics together. And instead of doing the SSRIs and uh, whatnot, I went towards the path of doing psychedelics and it was my way of uh, uplifting myself and being able to contain and encompass my own uh, mind. Uh, and I'm happy I did so because uh, everything that modern psychology was telling me is wrong with me is everything that makes me different, which is everything that I actually like about myself. So I'm happy that I actually got to embrace those things through uh, these, these uh, ancient medicines, really. If you don't mind talking a bit about that period where you said you were diagnosed with depression and were you feeling depressed? Were you going through some tough times in your life or was there, yes. was it a diagnosis that you didn't really relate to very well? Yeah. So that, that was the diagnosis as well as ADHD and, uh, I didn't think of depression. The thing is, I come from a third world, uh, what in Canada we describe as a third world country. And depression to me internally didn't mean this uh, crisis. I just felt like I'm in a bust and I have to, and it, I felt that it was, and this was after my first psychedelic experience, I felt like this is going to be a transformational thing. And I saw it more as a metamorphosis that things have to be worked on internally and I will grow from this. And I didn't think that suppress the suppression of my symptoms was going to be something that is going to actually make that metamorphosis happen uh, in the way that I wanted to. And so uh, I, I went towards uh, 
these ancient medicines with with uh, especially psilocybin and later DMT, uh, and uh, I'm glad I did because I have seen a lot of people in my life wither from SSRIs and whatnot. And you know, to answer your question, yeah, it was because of tough times. Uh, it was, uh, as I stated earlier, uh, you know, illness in my immediate family and uh, just the existential crisis. I had never been faced with the possibility of somebody uh, that I dearly love not existing uh, anymore. With the people who you've known who, who have had depression and have gone the pharmacological route, what impact do you think that had on them versus the root of more so-called seeking of enlightenment? You said you didn't want to suppress the symptoms. You wanted to bring them out. Whereas we know things such as SSRIs can definitely do the opposite. Absolutely. Have, have you seen kind of divergent paths that have emerged as a result of that? Yeah. The, again, I, I, I don't want to say who, but somebody in my immediate family, uh, you know, there was the Iran-Iraq war uh, in the 80s, and the repercussions of that had enormous effect on a large uh, portion of the Iranian population with regards to uh, anxiety, PTSD, depression, etc. Uh, every household in Iran pretty much has somebody that died in that war. At the at that point, the population of Iran was something like 25 million, and over over a million people died in that war. And so, it, it's it's not uncommon to have uh, you know the the generation before me have these uh, mental health conditions. When we came to Canada, uh, somebody in my immediate family was diagnosed with uh, PTSD, anxiety, and uh, depression, and they were on SSRIs. And I just saw them wither away, to be honest. You know, um, they uh, weren't themselves. That's just the best way I could really put it. They stopped uh, th those qualities that, that I saw in them suddenly started withering. And, and even the, the spark in their eyes, their wit, things of that nature was, was eroding. And uh, I've... And, you know, that's the one that has been closest to me, but I've had a lot of friends, uh, close, close people in my life that have been on SSRIs, and uh, you see them change. Absolutely. You see them change. What do you make of the diagnostic labels? Like, how did that impact you getting a quote-unquote diagnosis of depression and ADHD? Yeah, it's... A... <laughs> It's it's uh, a spiral. It's a, just a very terrible spiral, right? And and uh, I I wasn't feeling good. I was acting out. So my family wanted me to get medical um, screening. And uh, I feel like any any average person that goes to a psychiatrist will will come walk out of there with a couple of labels at least. Um, there is this tendency to have this line of normalcy, and if you deviate from that, there is something that. Uh, is usually pushed on you to be an issue. And I, I just see these things as, not always, of course, but many times, things that, that can be uh, fixed uh, internally. And uh, with, with uh, natural medicines, rather than going the pharmacological path, 
do you think there's a better route that we could take than pasting these labels on people? You know, I, I'm not a medical professional, psychiatrist, psychologist, but I think there is. I think at the end of the day, everything tends to become a business. And that is kind of the drawback with, with uh, major pharmaceutical companies and the way even academia is, is put in place uh, generally, not everyone, but generally. And uh, when things become a business, usually that tendency to care and be passionate and, and the, the, the reason people really got into it in the first place uh, starts to change and it starts to become more about uh, financials and things of that nature. And when that happens, then we're really losing uh, that that vision towards uh, whatever your goal was. If, if you're in uh, uh, pharmacology, you're trying to enhance people's lives. But essentially what we've seen, especially in the case of uh, depression, uh, mental health as the overarching uh, topic, is that you're suppressing people's uh, symptoms as well as inducing new side effects that require other uh, uh, other uh, pharmacological medicines. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm in the right position, but my opinion is, yes, there is a better way. I think even things such as talk therapy, music therapy, uh, and using functional molecules uh, should be tried first before somebody goes on a hardcore, uh, you know, whether you know, it, it, for, for anxiety, it's Xanax or, or going on SSRIs or if you have chronic pain going on benzos and opiates. I think other things could be tried before uh, people just uh, go on that route. Yeah. In Chinese, there's a term called Ming-Ming, which means Ming-Ming, Ming to give a thing a destiny by naming it. And it's kind of part of the, the Taoist philosophy that if you label something or name something, you're giving it that destiny. And in essence, as your family gave you the name Apoya, the seeker of truth. But on the negative side, if you give someone the label of ADHD, then people look for that. People anticipate it. Structures get set up so that that can be acknowledged and addressed. And that person grows up thinking that that's who I am. It becomes part of the identity. It becomes part of the destiny. Absolutely. Gauthier also says to de to uh, define is the limit, and mm -hmm. I see it in that exact same way. And I do think these things have a priority effect where they cause the manifestation to towards our own perceptions of ourselves. And uh, of course, it's very limiting once you see yourself in that way. But if you see it uh, as this energy that you can then transmutate into something transformative and I'm not saying this is the case for everybody there is of course people that have severe mental health issues and they have to be under professional care but I think a large population of people that could help themselves and this is really what we're trying to do at Levity Labs is to give people the power of choice and add these new layers of these 
ancient medicines into the traditional landscape of uh, mental health addiction and chronic pain and give people the power of choice because these things the research is now showing as well from johns hopkins as well as uh, maps and uh, many other universities have now jumped on as well they do work yeah and so we should put some attention on this you spoke earlier of suppressing the symptoms by taking pharmacological agents and once we are given that label and those symptoms obviously are present to earn that label those are being suppressed but alongside that we're also suppressing the creativity of each individual the inner genius of each individual because with Absolutely. within that ADHD or even depression or autism that is where our unique genius lies and so there it I find it just tragic how many people, as you said, are withering away under these drugs because they have lost connection with their heart, with their intuition, because it's it's blocked. Chemically, it's blocked. They just don't have access to it because everything has been suppressed. It's beautifully put. It is, you know, the artists are made in darkness, and uh, that is where you can truly become an artist is to, to use that darkness and that energy and it's extremely powerful and raw but to overcome it is really something that's worth uh trying at least with all of your being and in my experience every time that i felt i've been depressed they have become my most transformative moments in life and they have really caused a new chapter in my life well you mentioned levity labs and you just touched on the work you're doing there. So let's springboard into that because I want to learn more about how you are helping people through the work that you were doing. Absolutely. At Levity Labs, we're emerging multidisciplinary integrative wellness and psychedelics company. And what we're, our mission is, is we're transforming the traditional landscape of mental health, pain management and uh, addiction through the inclusion of evidence-based psychedelic medicine therapies. Right now, there is a huge, huge uh, issue with regards to, and especially right now, it's front and center with the coronavirus uh, of mental health and addiction. And I think the statistic from World Bank was up to $8.5 trillion of uh, lost economic output is the result of chronic pain, mental health, and addiction. And right now, the answers to mental health, as we have been talking about, is SSRIs for most things, uh, mental health related uh, for chronic pain. It's uh, opiates, uh, benzos, and uh, for addiction, you have uh, things like methadone and suboxone. When there was this renaissance of, of research that came out in the 50s, starting with Albert Hoffman, uh, with LSD and then uh, psilocybin, and there was this major renaissance, a thousand papers published that showed essentially psilocybin and LSD were considered as miracle drugs by the media, by scientists everywhere. And for the first time in scientific history, there was this suppression, not due to science, but because of politics, where an entire chapter of this miraculous uh, compounds, these, these curative compounds, were erased, all funding stopped, 
uh, due to politics and not because of anything that emerged out of uh, scientific literature. And so with Levity Labs, uh, we're, we're focusing on creating a platform of, of maverick physicians, of patients, addiction patients. We've really gone to the belly of the beast. We're rolling up these mental health and addiction clinics, and then we're including psychedelic therapies and medicines uh, in time, starting from ketamine and then psilocybin. Tell me more about the genesis of this for you. Yeah, so my, my background is in investment banking, uh, venture capital, uh, private equity, uh, mainly on the capital market side in the uh, venture capital or public venture capital side of things in Canada. And I was, I've mainly been involved in frontier kind of industries. When cryptocurrencies happened, I was very involved with financing those deals. Uh, then cannabis came by, which was, has served as a large precedent for now this psychedelic movement. And uh, of course, there was a lot of value created, but also because of the hype, we saw a lot of companies come and emerge from the hype. But really, they were, uh, there, were there was a lot of profiteers that came because of this uh, huge inflow of money because of the excitement, but they really had nothing uh, to show for it. And, and we've seen how that's worked out for a lot of them. And now the cannabis industry has gone through a consolidation phase and the leaders have emerged. When this happened with psychedelics, uh, I left investment banking. I had started a, with my partner, uh, a, a merchant bank, and we were looking at different psychedelic deals. I was obviously extremely bullish on this, and we saw a lot of the same players on the street that kind of emerge when there is a hype industry, their profiteers. They came, and we were looking at deals to invest in. From the network that I, I had amassed, and studying the business plans and the, the, the structures of these companies, I realized that a lot of these are set to fail, save a few. And so I got together with a lot of my partners, mentors, and my contacts in the psychedelic space, and we, we decided to start our own deal. I have a lot of this, this sense of protectiveness and pride with, when it comes to the psychedelic scene. And so we created Levity Labs. And this is about 11 months ago. In that time, we raised about $14 million. We're due to go public in uh, a month, month and a half. We're still waiting. We've already submitted our prospectus to the CSC, and we're just awaiting uh, their comments. And uh, once we go public, we're going to uh, go forward with our acquisition regimen of uh, these mental health addiction clinics. Uh, and start rolling more of these assets, centralizing them, and then including these psychedelic-based uh, uh, medicines and therapies within these platforms. So how is Levity Labs set to success rather than so many of the other ones that you saw that were set to fail? Yeah, so the first thing, it, it comes down to structure, and this kind of goes into the realm of the financial verbiage, but uh, it's how we structured it. So. For example, all of our founder shares, everything that the founders own uh, uh, from from uh, this when we essentially raised our first round of money, as well as all of the builder shares are locked up uh, for a minimum of three years. And that's including my shares. So nobody's going anywhere. No one's going to be able to sell their shares. And a lot of the, these businesses that are set to fail 
they uh, essentially raise and give themselves a lot of cheap shares. They take these companies public and then they get out after essentially doing some marketing campaigns, raising the stock price and uh, really drowning the retail money. So what we've done is we've locked all of these shares up. All shares, 94% of our pre-public financing shares uh, are locked up. So that's one of the main things. Secondly, instead of focusing on just purely pharmacological development and IP, we focused on the platform. We do, I believe that this is going to be a cooperative effort. We're not competing in a sense. We want this movement to be a large movement and we want a lot of people to succeed uh, with the right intentions. So we focus on building a platform uh, based on these acquisitions, which already have great fundamentals, uh, and then we're adding these layers to them and centralizing them on the back end. Uh, so this way, we're actually creating fundamental value. There is proven revenue, there is proven cash flow, and we're essentially, on my side, I'm not a scientist, but I am a good capital allocator and a good steward of capital. And we're bringing on uh, the best of the best with regards to operators uh, and and uh, executive management to oversee these different parts. As it currently stands, we have our medicinal clinical side, which uh, we have, still haven't announced them, but our CSO is going to be handling. And uh, he's a fantastic guy with uh, a lot of experience. Uh, he's been director at some of the largest uh, uh, institutes health-wise in the world. And on the nutraceutical side, which is more on the enhancement of the well-being of, of average people, we have amazing formulators, uh, you, I, I'm sure you know Yarrow Willard and, and yeah. uh, Paul Kroger, etc. Uh, they're on that side, and we have amazing e-commerce experts. Uh, so essentially, it's fundamental. We're not going out there with no revenue, no fundamentals. We essentially went public at a one-times future-looking uh, revenue multiple, which is unheard of with an extremely tight structure, and we're looking to actually transform the landscape. The intention isn't to go in and get out, it's to create a legacy, and even more so, to stand on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like, as opposed to creating everything from scratch, building from the ground up, you're finding partners that are already doing some amazing things out there. And yep. you're basically bringing that talent together, bringing that passion together in something that's larger, something Levity Labs Absolutely. can help to foster into the future. Absolutely. And in this case, one plus one equals three. When you bring amazing minds together and align them with a vision, then the synergies that come out of it are, are remarkable. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm by no means a scientist. I'm by no means a nutraceutical or herbal expert. But what I am is I can provide the resources for these brilliant minds uh, in a decentralized fashion to bring all of these things under the same roof to actually try to transform. Uh, this, what we see is wrong, which is uh, the way things are done right now with regards to addiction, mental health, and chronic pain. It's really about making people uh, their own heroes, giving them the power of choice and 
being able to educate them on things that have always been available, but they didn't know is available to them. You talked about some revenue streams. What are some of your main revenue streams that you have right now? Yeah, so uh, when we are public right now, we have fully executed uh, LOIs and definitive, where we're on the definitive agreement stage with regards to our acquisitions. The main streams of revenue is going to be one from our uh, mental health addiction clinics, as well as specialized pharmacies. Uh, so from those, they've done in the last 12 months, $7.5 million in revenue with about $1.2 million in cash flow. We have superfoods and nutraceutical companies that we're acquiring in the last 12 months. They've done $2.5 million in revenue and about 750000 in cash flow, as well as we've created our own assets. The biggest one is Sporio Supply, which is essentially... Um, it's a factory for sterilizing despondent substrate to address the overwhelmingly fragmented mushroom cultivation market. And the biggest pain point for cultivators in the mushroom space, whether it's functional or other kinds of mushrooms, is the sterilization of the spawn and feedstock, the, the spawn and substrate uh, that, that then you grow the mushroom from. And so these are pre-inoculated bags that really make it easy for cultivators to grow whatever kind of mushrooms that they want to make. And there we have an agreement with My Green Planet, where the owner of My Green Planet, Justin Chorvajan, is actually on our board uh, as well, and he's one of our big investors. And we have an agreement with them where they're our uh, master distributor, and they're buying 75,000 of these bags from us per month, which essentially comes to about 1.2 million revenue per month and uh, about $800,000 in cash flow per month. So. We've set all of these things where in the future they become vertically integrated, as well as uh, we have other assets that don't have revenue or cash flow, but are uh, extremely necessary for us uh, to integrate psychedelics in into the rest of uh, our assets. And uh, our, our key uh, lines is uh, a, a dealer's license, which essentially allows us to import, export, to do research and development. Uh, to cultivate as well as process the raw materials for, as well as to sell for medicinal use, psilocybin, DMT, uh, LSD, and uh, MDMA. So these are our main assets currently, uh, and they're all predicated uh, at the time that we go public, other than Sporia Supply, which is going to be in production in about five weeks. Very cool, man. I love it. I also love too that from what little I know of you, uh, this is not just a business move for you. No. This is coming from the heart and you mentioned time and time again that you really want to create a different way that people can get help, that people can do the internal reflection and grow through these experiences rather than wither away on medications. Absolutely. And I'm not saying medication is not right for anyone. But what I'm saying is people should have these options available to them before they go and make that ultimate decision of being on SSRIs for two to three years at a time. Because they're non-addictive. They, I believe, are more than likely to help you. And uh, I think this is a cause worth fighting for and dying for. And... Uh, 
you know, I, I'm not a type of guy who likes to be in the spotlight. I don't like to do podcasts, anything of that nature. But for this and for this cause, uh, it, it's something that I'm going to stand for. I'm, I'm usually in the my background. I've been in the shadows. And here I'm proud to have my name as a CEO on this company. And you should be. And from my opinion, anyway, I'm honored to hear that. Todd. Can you give a just a brief overview for n- people new to the psychedelic world? You mentioned psilocybin, MDMA, DMT, LSD. Can you just give like a brief description of what we know is the therapeutic value of each of these and actually what they are, where they're derived from? Yeah, so what's interesting is so with psilocybin, it comes from uh, uh, magic mushrooms, the active uh, component in magic mushrooms, uh, or psilocybin cubensis, is, is psilocybin. Right now, and really this is what I'm about to say, is falls in line with pretty much all psychedelics, including LSD as well. But from what researchers understand is that there is a parts in your brain which, which, we, which we call the uh, default mode network. And the default mode network is what is uh, responsible for us having this understanding of our own identity. It's uh, how we kind of integrate our memories in our uh, to form our identities, as well as uh, everything that has the subjective notion and how we view ourselves towards our objective world. And when you do psilocybin, uh, LSD, or DMT, what happens is the DMN uh, or default mode network becomes quieted. And when this is quieted, suddenly there is all these different parts of the brain suddenly speaking together and uh, communicating with each other, creating these neural pathways. And this is also where uh, researchers believe the idea of ego dissolution or the ego death comes from is when the DMN is quieted and the, the uh, this this veil of the ego is suddenly lowered. Uh, this boundary, as it's lowered, suddenly we're not just thinking about ourselves and we're, we're allow our subconscious and unconscious mind to suddenly connect with our consciousness. And it's not always a pleasant experience. It's Usually for me, they're very challenging experiences, but they're beautiful. And um, the therapeutic value with regards to most of these psychedelics comes down to the same thing with regards to, um, I mean, if you even look at the molecular structures of psilocybin and DMT, they're they're extremely similar. And uh, they don't really know from a scientific stance what happens. But the way I would describe it, it's as if you can go down to the code of your mind and then start debugging it with the right set and setting. And what we see when we go out, uh, look at pictures from fMRI patients that, that are, have undergone psilocybin, and I don't know how patients <laughs> kind of bared <laughs> being in an fMRI tube uh, with psychedelics, but uh, that would be a scary experience, definitely not the <laughs> setting for me. But it shows that all of these different parts of the minds are connected, the DMN is quieted, and this is where uh, it's hinting and giving us a clue of this mechanism of how the brain is, is reacting towards this uh, stimulation. But uh, if you know, you're in my first experience uh, with uh, DMT 
really makes me connect with end-of-life patients, for example, that was that were subject to research at Johns Hopkins, where they suddenly lost fear of their existential crisis because these were late-stage cancer patients, and they uh, were given a macrodose of psilocybin, and suddenly uh, two-thirds of them said it's one of the top five uh, most meaningful moments of their life. And when I did DMT, I completely understand that. It absolutely... Uh, takes away the fear, uh, for me at least it did, of, of death. And so that, I think mortality, is one of the fundamental, uh, fundamental things in life that causes us to fear. And when you suddenly have this immensely mystical and spiritual experience where you feel like you have just kind of died, and you are seeing your afterlife briefly. Uh, it's not crazy to think that, uh, you know, these patients came out of that thinking, wow, like, there's a lot, I don't know, maybe this isn't the, the end. Maybe there is uh, somewhere, or my consciousness is going to continue to exist uh, after my physical body uh, withers away. And for me, it was definitely like that with mm-hmm. DMT. Uh, so, yeah, the, you know, with regards to each of these specific uh, functional molecules, they do they do resemble, uh, and you know, especially with the case of LSD, uh, psilocybin, or DMT, it is quite similar with regards to what happens at ayahuasca. And now there's semi-synthetic forms of DMT, which are psilocybin-based, called like 4-ACO DMT, which which do the same kind of mechanisms. Mm-hmm. The therapeutic value is the unveiling. It's, it's this veil of the, in the way I see it, is suddenly your subconscious and unconscious being able to connect to your consciousness. Well, the default mode network, it reminds me a lot of the Taoist concept of the mundane that we're exposed to every day results in habituation. And we have these set neural pathways, mm-hmm. and that's, they're carved like gorges. That's just what we follow along. But through these, psychedelic therapies, we can quiet that mundane or get it out of the way and connect more to the spontaneity of our intuition, of our heart. Like tuning into a radio station where before it was just static. It it was there before, but there was so much other chaos that it was hard to get the message. And when you tune in properly and tune out the mundane and the habituation, what opens up is beautiful potential absolutely yeah it's 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 like an uprising of all these different parts of your mind and yeah that's that's beautiful it reminds me of what robert carhart harris from imperial college said he calls the dmn essentially the conductor of the neural symphony uh, which is very aligned with this uh daoist philosophy Mm -hmm. it's and suddenly the uprising of these different parts of your mind uh when this kind of uh uh, the, the king or the dmn is suddenly uh, suppressed yeah. and suddenly you have all these different parts of you just uh, rising up and communicating I'm in a, the herbal world as you know and yes, sir. many of these substances even with people who are practitioners in the herbal realm they get a bad rap and some people don't want to go anywhere near them and in my experience and in my reading and research these are 
these are not typically addictive substances. As a matter of fact, as you said, the experiences are often very unpleasant. And anytime I've done ayahuasca, there's a buildup to that. And there's a dread of, of the long night ahead. So I, I think there's a, a lot of misconception around them. You basically are an advocate for the right set and setting, the right therapeutic doses to help use these substances, most of which are natural plant-based, not all of them but many of them are fungal-based, but to help use these as an alternative, to help people heal. Absolutely, that is my position. And it's to have them as a choice. Right now, they are not being offered, and research, scientific literature is showing that they are highly successful. Single macro doses of psilocybin have proven effective for depression for over 18 months. One single dose. And of course, I could understand how the pharmaceutical industry doesn't like that because they do bank on lifelong patients. But yeah. yes, that is my position, absolutely. And so much research about, for example, the use of MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Absolutely. And yeah. war veterans who are undergoing therapy for one or two or three sessions who have radically transformed and been put on the path to healing. Mm -hmm. yes sir oh i love it i think it's incredible what you're doing what do you think is the ideal future with the integration of these therapies and what levity labs is trying to bring into the reality i think for us to have a better world and a better future we have we have to first change our perception and to change our perception we have to be able to change ourselves and what psychedelics and these uh, plant medicines, not just include, but psychedelics definitely being uh, emphasized here, allow us to do is go into the abyss of the mind and change our perception. And if everybody was to go inward and change themselves and, and have that metamorphosis internally, then I think naturally the world becomes a better place. People will be able to connect with each other again uh, in a better way. And uh, I think just naturally, uh, things will be more harmonized and less distorted. Uh, giving these choices to people should be a right. These are things grown from nature. I don't think um, anyone should have the right, ideally, to tell someone that they have the right or, or uh, not the right uh, to consume something that is born out of nature. And so you're basically working to create a system where people can have access to pure and safe substances to use. They'll have safe clinical settings with practitioners to provide that set and setting. I yeah. presume there's going to be educational institutions to help train those practitioners. That is absolutely crucial. And I think there's going to be a huge shortfall with regards to the number of practitioners who actually have experience with psychedelics or uh, have been, there, there is really, there is coming to be, but there, there isn't really any solid accreditations with regards to even medical professionals being able to understand uh, how to treat people with psychedelics. And I think that is going to be a huge opportunity for uh, academic institutions. Yeah. Well, and even as a, the director of an institution that 
teaches herbal medicine and we have some of the most comprehensive curriculum in the world when it comes to herbal medicine. Although we do touch and teach some of the psychedelics, it's still one of those taboo areas that we aren't necessarily going nearly as deep into it. So our students are not coming out with the knowledge to be practitioners with these things. So really there needs to be a, an entire new mold that is created so that people are trained to use these and to be able to handle the grief and the trauma and whatever else comes up during the sessions. Absolutely. There's a huge gap right now with regards to uh, even the economics. Uh, legally produced psilocybin, for example, uh, from a licensed dealer in Canada, from the latest estimates that I have heard of, is about a thousand dollars a gram because of all the wow. overhead and upfront costs. Uh, to do it legally right now, versus going to South America with a shaman that has been generation generationally taught this as a right, uh, has practiced this for ten uh, decades, if not more. Uh, and meeting a lot of like-minded people in a beautiful setting, uh, it's still going to cost you less than having a macrodose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What's the timeline for this being online? As far as people having this this access that levity is bringing to the the world, this movement is happening quickly. the The timeline we hope to have these options available to patients who would benefit most from them by 2022, wow. by Q1 2022. That's fast, man. And Levity has been on such a rocket ship ride. 11 months, dude. This must <laughs> You must just be hanging on. It's been beautiful. I have an amazing team and uh, amazing partners. I'm extremely proud of everybody. Uh, everyone's passionate about this. And so... A lot of the, when we started this, a lot of people didn't know when their next check is going to come. And it was in the middle of the pandemic. And we just decided to do it because yeah. and everything has aligned. And people really feel our passion and our purpose. And uh, I'm, I'm just absolutely blessed to have such an amazing team. Yeah. And alignment just happens, I think, when we really open ourselves up to our purpose and follow that follow our passion. Look, I'm going to let Absolutely. you go in just a moment here. You mentioned that your first psilocybin experience was not your most transformative. Can you share one of your most mystical or transformative experiences? Man, that is a, that is a tough question. One of the ones I remember right now is when I did 10 grams of penis envy mushrooms. This is last <laughs> summer. Um, and I went into a dark room. I was at a friend's house and I went into a dark room and my first time breaking through on DMT, kind of backtracking, I started throat singing, like Mongolian throat singing <laughs> in a weird way. And this time I had the urge to do it too. It was kind of like a DMT trip. And I started throat singing and I was seeing all these visuals in my eyes in the darkness. My eyes were closed. But then when I opened my eyes, I noticed that uh, the visuals didn't change. It was as if my eyelids didn't exist. It was extremely trippy. So I started closing one eye looking and then closing the other one looking uh, and, and the visuals were the same. So I started thinking about like quantum physics and all these other different <laughs> principles, mathematical axioms, etc. And 
I suddenly had this realization that I'm, I'm like, am I seeing the fabric of space right now? And as I thought that, I had this urge to essentially throat sing. And as I did, these visuals started changing with my the vibrations of my throat. And it just blew my mind. It was something that I felt in my spine. There was this absolute awareness of my breath and spine and I was changing the visuals with my voice and it was just completely utterly uh, the connections that were happening in my mind and brain were were just happening at a rate that they've never happened before and uh, yeah that that's one that that was one of the times that I cried on a psychedelic trip and I'm, I'm not somebody known to cry at all and uh, it was that was also very beautiful too. It almost sounds as if there has been suppression of your voice, either literally or figuratively, in the past, oh, and this is that emergence of it. That's beautiful. Yeah, I didn't think about it like that at all. That's amazing. So cool. I love the work that you're doing. I love the I'm honored to hear that man the passion so that you're putting behind it and the purpose the purpose is not to create a monstrous corporation that is just going to capitalize on an emerging industry and your purpose is to genuinely help people heal and i love that it's just yes, so sir. beautiful uh honored to hear that from you todd no, I, Levity Labs and the whole team, we look up to you guys for what you've created as well. So really honored wow. to hear that. Thank you, man. Last thing, you spent many years studying, reading philosophy and reading different philosophers. Did any philosopher or philosophy emerge for you as something that you hold steadfast to or something that you've really that's really had a strong impact on you yes i would say so um i would say plato which also uh did a lot of psychedelics for people who don't know Hmm. (laughs) Uh, naturally but 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 more towards uh i would say frederick nietzsche as well as carl Jung. those are two that have really been transformative for me and also, I have to state Persian poetry ah, well, as well. Of course. And even though I'm getting more into it, but definitely, yeah. Thank you, brother. My pleasure. Thank you, Todd. It's been a blast. I really look forward to ongoing communication and relationship with you. Thank you for Absolutely. the work that you're doing. Thank you for caring so much. It's an honor. Thank you so much, Todd. Thanks for listening to this episode of Salish Wolf with Poya Farmont. To learn more about Poya and Levity Labs, visit levitylabs.com. That's L-E-V-I-T-E-E-L-A-B-S dot com. Please check out anchorpointexpeditions.com for information on my men's leadership retreats and personal development coaching. Stay tuned for the announcement of 2021 retreats during which I take men on purpose-driven adventures along British Columbia's wild coast. This show was produced by me, Todd Howard, on Vancouver Island. Music was written and performed by Jason Kaus of the Darcys. Special thanks to Pacific Rim College for their ongoing contribution to the show. 
For episodes on holistic health and sustainability, please tune in to my other podcast, Pacific Rim College Radio at pacificrimcollege.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for my upcoming DotCast, Takea Chronicles, featuring the inspirational story of the lone wolf that mesmerized the city of Victoria by taking up residence on a tiny archipelago off the city's coastline. There, Takea thrived, showing us even the most unlikely is possible. You have been listening to Salish Wolf. I am Todd Howard, signing off.